1: welcome back in this one i talk to a filmmaker and an actress about a great movie a great story and a great journey i think you're really really going to enjoy this one stay subscribed for more episodes and if you like this one please you have to pay for it and you have to pay for it by telling your friends or leaving a lovely review on itunes there we go it's always good to start a new episode with some passive aggressive blackmailing right here's the music Hello, you are very welcome to this episode of Fascinated With Me, Geroad Farrelly. Now, today I have a great guest. It's Stephen Bradley, who is a screenwriter, film producer and director. And he recently has had huge success doing all three on his latest movie, Noble, which is a biopic of children's rights campaigner Christina Noble. I first met Stephen a few years ago through his wife, Deirdre, who is the star of Noble. Uh, now, when I say his wife Deirdre, I think we all know the Deirdre I'm talking about. It's actress and comedian Deirdre. Okay, she was
2: fired because she had this very arrogant man on board one day. Okay, he was also up in first class, but he was just miserable. He was miserable from the minute he got on the flight. He hated the food. He hated the drink. He hated my sister, but he kept asking her for stuff without a please or a thank you. You know, just I'm really cold here. Could I get a blanket? And eventually, he just pushed her to the edge, poor the edge. <laughs> <laughs> so she went down to him and she said. Look, would you ever fuck
1: off? (laughs) I first met Deirdre in 2011 when she was coming back to Ireland to road test some new material. She was doing three dates around the country and she needed a support act. So I collected her at Cork Airport and we spent the weekend driving to shows. Now, I'd never met Deirdre before. We had some great chats and at the time she even swore me to secrecy about a few projects that were on the horizon but not necessarily locked down. Chris O'Dowd had told her that he had written a part for her in a TV series and her husband had completed work on a movie script about the life of Christina Noble and they were hoping that if they could find an investor they could actually get it made. Now, I know nothing about the film business, but as we drove around, she told me that even if a film gets funding, a project can end up shut down or shelved midway through production or just beforehand because simply investors pull out. And she need not have worried because she was right. A few months later, Noble was almost completely funded by a single investor eager that Christina Noble's story be told. So Deirdre's stand-up tour never actually materialised and she headed off to Vietnam to prepare for the role. I caught up with Deirdre again in July of 2013 in London. It was 18 months after those stand-up gigs, and at the time, Noble was being edited. It was actually completed six weeks after I spoke to her. By then, she had made two seasons of the Chris O'Dowd series Moonboy, and she was just about to get ready to go to Ireland and shoot another one. God, I'm
2: so glad I've met you, because when it's put like that, it just sounds amazing, <laughs> I'm like, God, whose life is this? <laughs>
1: but, like, how does that feel? Like, you're on you're on the other side of all that. How's life?
2: Um, I think to, to have Noble in the can is amazing. Of course, because you're never happy, I'm, now that it's in the can, I absolutely, I'm desperate for it to be finished, uh, uh, for the edit to be finished, you know. Yeah. So it never stops. It's always next, next, next. But, yeah, getting Noble in the can, incredible. And uh, Moonboy is a hit, so, you know, and I, I love that job. So, yeah. Um, it's very good. It's very good.
1: And just explain a bit more about Noble. It's the life of Christina Noble. Yes. It's a biopic.
2: Yeah, and for anybody who doesn't know who Christina Noble is, um, I suppose there's a generation of people who don't. She's uh, an incredible Irish woman who had a very, very tough childhood. Um, um, but, but but when she w- uh, she left Ireland to go to Birmingham and married a Greek man, who, who she kind of walked into the... Brian Pan had more more difficulty there because she had a very hard life with him but she did have three fabulous children and in the middle of that uh, would have been the 60s I guess she, she had a dream about Vietnam and uh, I mean probably the Vietnam War and that news was probably on the television at the time and possibly subliminally you know, who knows why she had these dreams but, but she did have a very vivid dream about Vietnam and she is very spiritual and very connected to God, not by any particular religious God, just, you know, whatever's out there. And she kind of knew that she'd have to go. So as soon as she raised her kids, she she basically talked about Vietnam for years. And when her children were raised and they left school, she said, well, I'm going to go now. So she went to Vietnam with about 500 quid in her pocket. And, uh, she was 44 years old, which is the same age I was when we started shooting, ironically. Um, and she then, basically, over the next 25 years, she opened a social and medical centre. It took her two years to do it initially, and since then she's opened 80 centres across Vietnam, and then also went to Mongolia. So she's, so my, without question, she's my hero. You know?
1: An incredible woman. But incredible. the flip side of you suddenly taking that on, well, there's two things. One is she's still alive, and two, she's a real person. Surely that's a little bit terrifying.
2: It's a little bit terrifying except that I knew I could do it. I suppose if you know, it's exactly the same as being a stand up comic. People say, How do you do that? Well, because a little bit of your gut knows that you can. Wow. You know? You just think, okay, it's not it's not easy, but actually I know I can do it. And I, I knew that I could play Christina. I've been wow. listening to her voice for years. I knew I could get very close to her. Yeah. I didn't want to do an impression of her, but I knew that I would be able to play
1: did you play her work and all like well
2: well, essentially I had to I had to play the script it's certainly not a glorified picture of Christina but um, I think it's fair I think it's a very fair portrayal of I mean Christina's life is so huge that we've only scratched the surface in a way in order to show how she was able to do what she did in Vietnam, we had to show her childhood. We had to show that struggle, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to understand how she could have empathy with street children in Vietnam if you didn't understand that she'd been a street child herself. So we had to show a lot of her background. So in actual fact, we only showed four months of her life in Vietnam, Um, and that is scratching the surface considering she'd been there 25 years. So we showed the initial struggle of her getting the money and, and then her getting the money to open the first center. So we showed that period of our life.
1: In, in getting ready, like to, you, you worked with her over yeah, there for, yeah. a few. what was that like?
2: It was intense and amazing because you, you know, I had already, I went to Vietnam with Christina, there's just the two of us um, yeah. because I really, I really needed that and she was very involved in this film and very supportive and she wanted yeah. to give me her time. So we went for 10 days uh, and just lived in each other's pockets 24-7. And it it, it was amazing because I I really felt like I was ready to shoot. But when I got on the plane to come, I thought, could we just roll the camera now? And it kind of was inconvenient for me to have to hold it off for two more months because her voice was in my head and I I had it. In any case, I recorded her a lot.
1: And when you were over there, was it all hands on deck? Like you know, were you involved in the work, um, or was it obviously Yeah, well, Christina's
2: her? almost 70, so she yeah. is not able to do what she was once able to do, but uh, she did a lot, I, I did an I awful lot of very different things, like, I met government ministers with her, you know, which was interesting yeah. to see her mind at work, you know, people forget yeah. that side of Christina, you know, that she's, she's a businesswoman, I mean, she doesn't make any money for herself, but she makes money for the foundation because she has to raise two and a half million every year to keep that foundation running. And she takes governments to court and she challenges policies and she she does all of that. So I, I watched her meet high and mighty people and oh then God. I watched her with the children. She's a different person when she does that and a lot of people came to her, people, you know, without limbs and without eyes and people that she'd taken out of camps years ago. Yeah. came to see her. a lot of people she, she kind of holed up in a hotel with me and a lot of people came to her Helenita who's her daughter sort of scheduled the the week I went out on the back of a motorbike with people from the foundation to see to visit some of the families they help and to go into the tough areas the I mean Christina has to take it easier she doesn't yeah. but she yeah. has to you know she
1: that's very, very intense.
2: It was very intense. But the yeah. only thing about that is that Christina is very funny. So okay. it's not always... While it was very intense. She's also a funny person. So yeah. We, so so, we had some laughs. You know, we had some laughs. My name is Christina Noble. When I was much younger, I had a dream. I don't know why. Afford to make any more mistakes. I need you to tell me what to do.
1: Noble was released on the 31st of January 2014. It was released in Ireland, Vietnam, and the UK. It went on to win the Best Feature at the Boston Irish Film Festival, the Audience Award at the Dallas International Film Festival, Best Foreign Film at the Newport Film Festival, and the Panavision Spirit Award for Independent Cinema at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. I caught up with Stephen in April, just before Noble's American release, to talk about the journey the film has taken and how it all began. So yeah, I think exactly. it would be a nice, uh, like, journey of the whole thing. Yeah,
3: you know? which is, co- the long journey. <laughs>
1: yeah, but that's where we can start, like, how long did it
3: take? Yeah, it's taken six years altogether from the time that we first had the idea about exploring getting the rights to Christina Noble's books and to her life story and making contact with her. So it's taken six years between then and now when we're just about to release the film in America.
1: And as filmmaking goes, is that is that the standard or does it, you know, with an independent movie, is that is that average or is it a a long time or is it or does it happen really quickly?
3: To be honest with you, it's probably fairly close to standard. The bit that's taken us longer has been since we finished the film and getting to this point where we have a whole lot of worldwide sales and the American release coming now. And the reason for that is that we funded the film completely through private equity funding, and we used the UK tax film credit. So we didn't have a supporter from the start like a Channel 4 or a BBC or Irish Film Board or Pathé or one of those distributors. And if you have one of those from the start, you generally, they're planning the release as you're shooting the film. But we didn't have that scenario. We had to make the film and then start showing it at festivals and build a whole momentum to get it internationally released. So that's the bit that's kind of been unconventional and has taken us longer. But as for the, the period of development and the period of making the film, fairly normal kind of three to four years. You
1: Like you've done it the hardest way possible and the results are... Like, the results are starting to show now from the momentum, I suppose, built up festivals. Um,
3: yeah, and there was a certain amount of... I mean, it was kind of scary. That was the scariest bit. The, the last year has been the scariest bit, because you've got a finished film that you're pretty happy with, and that starts getting good festival exposure and winning awards internationally. But it just takes time to build up that momentum. And you you can falter at any point during that stage. Um, so, in in a way... The, the writing and directing and making and post-production of the film, that was all quite luxurious in a way in that we had the film very solidly financed and we had, a, you know, we had great cash flow. We didn't have some of the issues that you have with very complicated co-productions. We didn't have any of that. Yeah. But we, we, as Deirdre says, we paid for that luxury once we'd finished the film because we had to start from the ground up in terms of building the momentum for the distribution of the film
1: and in in building that momentum and now the distribution is kind of in place how engaged do you have to stay on that on a daily basis you know uh, are you or or is it now out of your hands
3: uh well i should say that i've worked on that whole i mean on the film in total but on that period particularly intensively with melanie gore grimes who's my co-producer on the film and i would say that from the time that we finished the film I had the final print in our hands. For about a year after that, she and I worked full-time on pushing the film up the hill. And that included quite a bit of travel to the States because we did quite a lot of festivals there, getting a sales agent on board, screening the film at Cannes in the market, all kinds of things, trying to find champions to to get behind the film, all of those kind of things. That was about a year of full-time work. Wow
1: and the story like that we we'll go back to the beginning because the story goes there's a kind of a lore around this film that uh, it began as a motivational conversation almost you were having dinner with Deirdre for her birthday
3: yeah <laughs> it, deirdre and i we i mean we're we we love working together but it's often it's just often hard to find things you want to work on together and um literally on the day of her 40th birthday we were actually having lunch and um I said to her, yet again, you know, have you, got, have you got an idea for something we might develop? And this immediately came out of her mouth that the only thing she wanted to do was work on a film about the, the life and work of Christina Noble. And she had done some stand-up gigs in aid of the Christina Noble Foundation before that, and she had read Christina's books, you know, 18 years before that or something. So it, it, it just seemed a natural moment. Um, and that was the start of the process. So... Okay, so you ruin your wife's
1: birthday, basically, (laughs) and then you start like what happens next when you when you go, Okay, we'll make a movie about this. What like what do you do the next day then to start progressing that is the case you have to do is it research or do you start coming up with a storyline or how, how do you know if something is a viable idea for a film?
3: Well, the very first thing we had to do was talk to Christina Noble, obviously, because she has two books that obviously she owns the film rights to. Or she did. Um, and you also need to, in this situation, clear her life story rights because she's a living person. So yeah. we so we Deirdre was doing another one of the fundraisers called the Tooth Fairy Balls um, organized by Caroline Downey and Ali Hewson. And, and Caroline and Ally arranged for us to meet Christina Noble as a kind of sidebar to, to doing the, the, the fundraiser. And Christina actually was talking to somebody, I think a producer at the BBC at that time, about possibly doing a film. So there was a little bit of toing okay. and froing there. And Christina herself took a couple of months to decide whether we were the people she wanted to talk to or they were the people she wanted to talk to. Um, and fortunately for us, she decided we were the people that she wanted to try and investigate. And it then took me, particularly me, because obviously I was the one who was starting to think about writing the script, it took me a couple of years of toing and froing to Ireland because we'd moved to London um, and having long discussions with Christina. And, I mean, that was partly research and partly persuading Christina to sign on the dotted line. Um, and she didn't sign on the dotted line, I think, until March 2010. So at that point, she said, OK, you know, I've really got to know you guys. This is going to be great with, with, with Deirdre playing one of the Christinas, if you like, in age terms. Um, and, at, and and when she signed over the book rights and her life story rights, Christina completely stood back then and said, right, it's your film. Go and make it.
1: That's I suppose on her part. That's quite brave to some extent, is it? I mean,
3: yeah, very brave, but very necessary. Um, and it, and it yeah. came right down to the extent that I only showed her the script when we were in pre-production. Just, I think, about a month before I was going to Vietnam for the final time to start shooting in Vietnam. And I showed her the script. I mean, she could have seen it before, but she just, you know, she just didn't want to. So I I, I gave her kind of the final shooting draft. And she changed. She asked me to change a couple of lines of dialogue, things that li- literally phrases that didn't ring due to things that she would have said. And that was it. And then she she never saw an edit of the film until we'd finished the film. And that th- that the fact that she stood back from it, you know, was vital for me because then I felt I, I really could make the film that I wanted to make
1: and in the and the period when you're courting her to try and to you know to to solidify this did you start writing or did you just start or, or did you kind of have to step back from that go you know this may not happen
3: yeah i mean from the very beginning i read the books and read the books and read the books as i was having conversations with her and i was trying to work out i mean it's a huge story yeah. we've only we've only covered a little bit of the story in the film and there were times when i was trying to cover much more recent parts of her life and there were times that I was trying to cover a whole very dramatic event that happened in Vietnam to her once, and there were there was lots of stuff that I had to edit and distill down. So I was kind of thinking about the the script, um, and I, I probably did write one draft I think before I actually had her signed on the on the dotted lines. A bit hazy as to how the chronology of all that worked, yeah. um, But I think I'd written one draft just on spec by the time we actually you know officially got the rights.
1: It's, it's so interesting that you say that you had to just pick, you know, you to pull from that big story, because I think when you watch the movie, you kind of think this is a, what's in this is huge because it spans so much. And there's so much that happens and um, that almost in itself must seem like a problem, like because she has had so much happen. If you were making a movie about that person and, you know, Christina Noble didn't exist, you were just taking all the plot points from her life and saying, well, this is the movie. Surely people will go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know.
3: <laughs> you know, this doesn't sound believable at all. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I mean, I think and what I eventually tried to do was capture the essence of Christina Noble. You know, and she's she's a very complicated cur- person. She's got lots of facets to her life, lots of contradictions Um and that, you know, that was what made me fascinated in making the film about her as a character. And also that it wasn't just a, a journey of hardship and toil and all this, that, that she's a very funny person. She sings wherever she goes at the drop of a hat. She's, uh, she's incredibly courageous, if not actually fearless. I'm not sure she, she knows what physical fear means. And so she's just a fascinating character. And yes, there's too much story to tell which is why I just had to hone down right down to the events that I wanted to get. And also that's why I chose the the structure of cutting to and fro between her at different ages so that yeah. you can see the things that she's done in Vietnam. You can see why she's done those, and you can see why they connected with her, those events, because yeah. you keep flashing back to what happened to her in her own life. So it was it was very much an attempt not to do da-da-da-da-da-da, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It was to try and give the film a view of Christina Noble that captured her essence rather than telling everything she's ever done.
1: Yeah, and it really does that because I think if it was this like end-to-end of her life, you'd kind of get a bit pissed off. You kind of don't want it to be true because the tagline on the film is one person can make a difference. To say that, it kind of sounds so trite until you know her story and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> what am I doing
3: with my life? <laughs> That's the thing. It is an incredible story. It's actually unbelievable what she has managed to do. And I think, you know, particularly the fact that she's done a lot of it on the other side of the world. I mean, she's also worked in the UK and she's worked in Ireland, obviously. But, you know, to travel to Vietnam and Mongolia at a time where she hardly knew where those places were. And to to do what she's done, it, it is just, it is, the story is quite incredible. And the very first time that we did a screening, during the edit, I like to do some screenings with, with a, 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 group, a small group of punters who don't know anything about the film and don't know that the filmmakers are there so they can be quite honest about what they think. And we hadn't put at that point on the, fi- on the front of the film a true story it, oh. as a title. And... And lots of them said at the end, oh, I, I you know, it, it, I would have had a different reaction. It took me a long time to work out that it really was a true story because it's just such an incredible story. And, you know, and, and they said that we would have had a, a very different reaction if we'd known it was a true story from the beginning, which is why I made sure that there's a big yeah. title, a, a big title at the front of the film saying a true story, because it is sort of incredible. It is one of those fact is stranger than fiction sometimes stories.
1: And because of of that content and and people, you know, who may not know who Christina Noble was, was it difficult to get this made? I mean, Deirdre O'Kane in in an Irish movie is is obviously a big draw. But when you, you know, you take Deirdre to the US where she she would be unknown, in getting people interested in a movie without, you know, a big box office name, was that hard?
3: It is hard. And that's why it's taken us a year of graft to replace you know, not having a big star, which if we'd had a big star, it would have been, I mean, apart from anything, it wouldn't have the genesis that it had, which was that Deirdre and Christina decided to make this film together. Um, yeah. If if it had had a big star and a much bigger, you would need a much bigger budget. I certainly wouldn't have been directing it as a kind of, as not a, you know, a bankable inverted commas director. Um, and yeah. so it would have had a whole different journey, but definitely the distributors, first and foremost, they want movies with stars because they think that that's box office insurance. And obviously a lot of the time it is. Sometimes it isn't, but a lot of the time it is. So in a way, what we had to do was replace that point of sale, if you like, with uh, going to the festivals and winning multiple awards, which gradually, gradually, gradually started to give the film some kind of star value and persuade people that actually Christina Noble is the star of this film But when you win six audience awards in America, it shows that the audience thinks that, that Christina Noble is the star of this film and that they want her story to be told. And I mean, the first festival we went to in America, our world premiere, was at Santa Barbara Film Festival in January, February of 2014. And they had scheduled two screenings of the film. They were both sold out. We didn't really know why, because nobody knew anything about the film. And as you say, it didn't didn't have any big stars in it. Yeah. Um, And they then scheduled four other screenings over the next 72 hours, including a 600 seater, all of which sold out. And that was just on the word of mouth about the story and about, you know, about Christina's incredible story and how audiences are just incredibly moved by it.
1: Wow, that's, that must have been amazing to be over in Santa Barbara and all of a sudden just to hear that, that
3: oh, yeah, we're putting on four more shows. Yeah, and, and it was an incredible relief as well, if you like, because we'd would we'd done some screenings before that, you know, private screenings, and we knew people loved the film, but a lot of the time, as some of the audience would be people we knew, and you're, n- you're never sure quite how much they're promising you as to how much they like it, et cetera. So yeah. to see it with a totally cold audience, none of whom we knew, And that it had that effect on them and that the word of mouth just spread in the town was was really fantastic and made us realize that that the film had that, you know, that it had the word of mouth going for it so that if we worked hard enough, we could replace the lack of a big star with that word of mouth, which is obviously what we're trying to do in America at the moment in in the run up to the release there. I mean, that must have been a huge relief.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it must have been, yeah, I can
3: imagine that was a nice night to hear that. Um, yeah, it was a huge relief. And the other thing you have to realise about it is how many films there are out there. I mean, I think Santa Barbara, um, I think, and it's Santa Barbara is not one of the major festivals. It's not a Sundance or a Toronto or a, or a Cannes or a Berlin, but it's a but it's one of the main sort of underling festivals, if you like. But they would still get 5000 films entered every year and they'd, you know, they'd, they'd have 350 films screening. Um, so you're, you that's your battle every time you do a festival. Uh, and if you want to come out with one of the top awards, then that's the battle you're fighting every time. Um, and you sort of realize at that point what a big battle it is to rise up through the ranks of these thousands and thousands of films that are made every year.
1: Wow. And um, when you were making the film, when you were because in some in some regards, you were nearly your own problem because you were writer and you were director. So where where you, you know, you allowed yourself creative freedom like to write and go, OK, well, we're going to, you know, you know, Vietnam and all of these logistical, which I imagine was a logistical problem, you know, and um, then as director, you have to resolve those problems that you've created for yourself. In going to Vietnam, obviously, that was a massive budgetary concern and, and logistical concern. How was there ever a point where you thought, you know what? We can make Moore Street look like Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: no, there wasn't, because you couldn't make Moore Street look like Vietnam. <laughs>
2: um,
3: and actually, I mean, not very many, many films have, Western films have got to shot, shoot in Vietnam in the last 30 or 40 years for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and we only had the prospect really of shooting there, I think, because Christina Noble is so well known there. She knows oh. government ministers. They, you know, people in the street know who Christina Noble is because she's got almost 100 projects throughout the country. Um, so we but we still had a. We still had to go through the bureaucratic process of applying for the red stamp from the government, from the Ministry for Film and Culture to to be allowed to shoot there. And that took us about six or eight months in cahoots with a Vietnamese um, production company who were on the ground. Oh, um so Vietnam, you know, it, Vietnam was very complicated and a lot of that work fell to Melanie Gore Grimes, who, you know, ha- had pre- a lot of previous experience in making bigger budget commercials for Ridley Scott's company. And and I knew that she could go into Vietnam and sort of, uh, you know, get over all those logistical obstacles. And I mean, shooting in Saigon, which is the traffic in Saigon, is the craziest traffic of any city I've ever been to in the world. Um, That was its own excitement.
1: I'd imagine. I mean, what we see on screen, how much of that was real-life Saigon and how much of that was dressing? Because I was trying to work that out when I was watching Like, did did you just rock up to a street and go, it's here, you know, this is our location? Or did you have time to dress it? And obviously to light it and stuff.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it was quite complicated. We had a great designer called Christina Casali who... um, is a BAFTA nominated designer. I mean that going back to the conversation about being the writer director and producer, one of the things I knew I definitely had to do was surround myself with really really good heads of department who all knew a lot more yeah. about their departments than I did. And that was, you know, that was a big priority for me and luckily I did get really experienced um heads of department who were fantastic. So in Vietnam, we had to actually bring Vietnam back to 1989, and in 1989 there weren't all the high-rise buildings in Saigon there are now, uh, and there weren't all the modern motorbikes and all of that. So we had to filter out the real 2013 Vietnam um, and impose 1989 Vietnam with vehicles and and angles of shooting and 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 all of that kind of thing. So it was a job to to make it. Generally, 1989. You know, we we had we had to make a few rules that that were that we where we allowed ourselves to break things because otherwise it was just too difficult. Okay. Um, but generally, I think it looks like 1989 Saigon, which is a you know a big a big tribute to Christina Casali and and the design department.
1: And it's so beautifully shot. That that was one of the things that I, I mean I don't know a lot about film. <laughs> I'll hold my hands up, but it is just. There's some shots, uh, particularly some of the shots on the water, that are just unbelievable. I mean, it, and because it was an independent film, were you allowing yourself a lot of luxury with that? Could you do without those expensive shots?
3: You know, well, it's a big
1: risk to take. I think.
3: Well, one of the one of the kind of uh, one of the strange things I decided to do. Um, was to shoot the film on 35 millimeter film. And nobody's shooting on film much anymore. They're all shooting digitally. And obviously the film had to then fly back to London and be developed. And that was taking four days to get clearance. And even if there'd been a problem with the film development or the stock, we didn't really have the time to go back and reshoot stuff. So that was kind of a big risk and maybe in retrospect, slightly crazy. But I wanted to do that because, the, you know, I don't care what anybody says, the truth about film particularly if you're shooting, period, and I was shooting Dublin in the 1950s, Birmingham in the 1960s, and Vietnam in 1989. So that's all pre the advent of digital. It just made sense to me to be shooting on 35 mil film, which, you know, is the highest quality material you can get and does capture that magic. And when you've got the light and the, the vast expanse of the river, this oily river, the Saigon River, flowing through the city and, and, and all of that, the, the the world around you gives you those production values. And I think one of the most gratifying things about the film is that people think, wow, look at the scale of it. And I was always trying to make a big scale film because Christina's life has this huge scale to it. And it wouldn't make sense to make a small film about her, to me. So it's always gratifying when people go, you know, it looks like a much bigger budget, budget film and look at the scale of it. And some of that is just, you know, the beauty and spectacle of Saigon. And some of it is a great cinematographer, and some of, some of it is the fact that we shot on widescreen 35mm.
1: You say there now, widescreen 35mm. Just the logistics of shoot, shooting on film. So you, you film, you've obviously got big cans of film that go over with you. Apologies now if I'm going, yeah, to, yeah. going too low level here <laughs> on the detail. <laughs> but I'm just curious, because you've got these bi- big cans of film that you bring with you, that then you shoot on, that I presume then need to be stored for the 10 weeks.
3: No, they then get flown out that night to London. Oh. They get flown out that night to London. Or I think it was every... We we there weren't flights, so we couldn't afford to fly them every night. So I think they were flown every, out every two or three days as a batch. And that batch was then uh, processed in the lab in London in Technicolor. Uh, and this will tell you how fast all of this technology is closing down, this old-fashioned film technology. I think we were one of the, one of the last, if not the last film to be processed in Technicolor, which has probably been processing film in London for 80 years, and we were one of the last to be processed there. Um, And then once you get what they call rushes clearance, which means that your negative is okay, it's all fine, then you know that you don't need to go back and reshoot any of that stuff, that it's all perfect on the film. And luckily, throughout the film, we we never had any problem with the negative or any of the rushes.
1: Because I, I was just thinking about that today. That what I mean, <laughs> I had visions of you with a whole doll gone through the airport, saying, "No, no, be careful with that one." <laughs> um, yeah, no,
3: you use a you use an international courier company uh, who are used to the the process of handling the film and and um, making sure it's not bashed around and all of that. Um, and you know, in truth, we could have had the I think we could have had the the negative processed in Bangkok or Hong Kong or somewhere like that. But I just wanted to get the negative back to London, which was where I was ending up. And I, you know, I knew that once I left Vietnam, all my negative was in London and I was kind of safe.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, When you come back to London, then uh, how soon did you start the edit?
3: Well, so we shot in Vietnam for four weeks, all of Deirdre's material. And then I came back. We left Vietnam on a Tuesday when it was 35 degrees. We were filming on our last day there and we started filming in. In Barrow and furnace, two, two hours north of Liverpool um, on the Saturday in minus five, so I had another eight wow. and I had another four weeks of shooting to do once I got back from Vietnam before I started the edit okay so the editor starts the moment that you start shooting the film or just a couple of days before, and the editor starts doing an assembly of the scenes as you go along, and some directors love to you know ring up the director or the editor and have long chats about how it's going and how the assembly is going i i'm not mad about that i like to let the editor do their own first assembly and only ring me if i've made a complete balls of some scene and it needs to be shot again which fortunately i didn't on this film but has been known to happen um <laughs> or or that you know there's you might need one shot or a pickup or something like that um Otherwise, in this scenario, I was I was in it and Vietnam I was on a different time zone from my editor. So I couldn't really talk to her. Um, okay. And when I was in Liverpool, you know, it was so kind of hectic. The shooting is so hectic and the days are so long that I that I, unless there are big problems, I, I just kind of like to keep going.
1: But when you, you know, when you get into the edit, when you start, how soon is it? into that process period how long are you at that before you kind of go you know this is actually yeah this is starting to look like what i want now
3: yeah well you've hit the nail on the head there because as any director or writer or producer will tell you when you see the first assembly it's a, it feels like an absolute car crash <laughs> and you're going oh you know this is <laughs> this is never going <laughs> to amount to anything um but but actually when you're the director y- you don't quite feel like that because you're just dying to get into the edit suite and put stuff together the way that you've seen it, not the way that the editor has seen it. Okay. Um, and that's a big difference. So it's changing the editor's assembly as to how they saw it in their head to the way that you saw it. Now, oftentimes, the editor has taken a scene and made it much better than you saw it in your head, which is a joyful thing. But a lot of the time, the editor, just through lack of communication or lack of being able to talk while you were shooting, might have put it, might have put a scene together in completely the wrong way as to the way that you'd actually shot it in your and, and thought of it in your head. So you need the first pass would be recorrecting all those assemblies, if you like, and putting them putting them together the way that you'd shot them and the way that you saw them in your head when you were shooting. And that improves the film a lot, because then you've got, if you like, the, for the first time, the director's edit is beginning to emerge. Um, and then there's another part of editing, which is that, it, you know, th- th- there's a kind of cliche about editing, which is that it's rewriting the screenplay one last time. And oh, yeah. editors editors what editors tend to not look at the script or you know you've been upset you've been poring over the script, and so has your crew during the during the and cast during the the shoot but the editor tends to take the script and throw it out the window because all they're caring about caring about is how the story works and how you feel at particular points and are you are the performances good and are you hitting the emotional beats at this moment so so they have a completely different perspective which you have to allow it to challenge you because you may have shot a scene up a mountain for 12 hours, you know, in the dark or some, and the cold. And all you can remember is the, the pain you went through to, to get it. But yeah. if the editor thinks it doesn't deserve to be in the film, then it, it's it's going to be gone. Yes. And and you, sometimes you have to accept that, you know, despite all the pain of making it, actually the film is going to be better without that scene in it or that you move that scene Sometimes you take a scene and you move it 20 minutes to the middle of the film. So the script really does go out the window and should go out the window. And it becomes a different type of storytelling. And at that point, you have to start really using. I, I often think that part of it, I think writing and editing, there, there's, some, there's something akin to the rules of stand-up comedy there. You know, it's old-fashioned storytelling. You're, you're around the bonfire telling the story. And if the audience are drifting off and they're not laughing, Yeah. You know, you're screwed. And I think cinema often, you know, should be thought of much more in that way of old old fashioned round the bonfire storytelling or being in front of an audience doing stand up comedy, which is, you know, living by your wits in telling the story. And obviously cinema has different things. You can let the thing breathe. You've got beauty shots. You. But ultimately, if you bore an audience or you there's a dip in the film then, you know, in a way you're committing a cardinal sin in the, in terms of old, fa- you know, good old-fashioned storytelling, uh, which and, is the kind of film that I like to make. I mean, I'm not talking about avant-garde film now or, yeah, or yeah. you know, that kind of thing. I'm talking about films that are, are really trying to grip and entertain an audience and tell a story.
1: Now, you've been talking about the, the whole process so fondly, which is nice and that, and that it, you know, the whole thing flowed and it got better and better. But was there a time in the middle of the
3: project where you were like, oh, this is a disaster? Um, I don't think, <laughs> no, to be honest with you, I'd worked on the script so hard and I'd, I'd, I'd had so many good people around me and we'd done so much honing of the script and kind of, I think, chopping out faults where there were faults beforehand uh, that I'd, I never thought that it was going to be a, a disaster. Um. You know, it's scary when you when you do screenings for punters who don't know about the film and don't care about the film and, you know, can can, can really, you, you let them rip into it. You let you give them questionnaires and make sure they don't think that any of the filmmakers are there so they really can rip into it. Those things are scary, but I, they also tell you a lot because that, that kind of honesty is just the honesty about, oh, I thought it was boring here or I thought that was rubbish yeah. or I didn't laugh at that or that actor wasn't very good or, you know, there's a great honesty there which allows you to keep trying to, shave away and perfect the story. I mean, the, the, I think oftentimes the one of the hardest parts, uh, and I was very lucky on this film with this part of it, but it's still scary, is when when you're editing the film and when you start to put bits of music on the film, and you, you, do, you don't have the music you're eventually going to have, because that is yet to be composed. So you get bits of music that you think are perfect and you put them on the film, and obviously you don't have the rights to use those fil- that, that music. That, it probably comes from other soundtracks and you're just putting them on as a temporary soundtrack. And you kind of, you kind of, you kind of, sometimes the danger is you fall in love with that music and then you hand it over to a composer and you go, right, give me music that's exactly like that. And obviously they can't because the the whole beauty of being a composer is you've got to do your own thing. You've got to come up with original work. You've got to improve the film and be better than the temp soundtrack if possible. But the first time you hear the, the, the first Composers work, that can be scary because sometimes you look at a scene and the music is completely wrong for it, and and it can it can it, it can completely wreck or change the tone of a or the tone or the pace of the of the of the of the scene. In which case, you've got to work with a composer to change that. Uh, and on this film, uh, I was working with Giles Martin and Ben Foster. They were working together as composers, and they're br- brilliant. Ben's very experienced in doing a lot of TV composing. And Giles has obviously worked, you know, on the on the on the Beatles catalogue and has won Grammys for producing and all kinds of things. And it was actually his first soundtrack. But because we started talking about the film so early, he was sending me bits of music while I was shooting. I I remember being in Liverpool and one night he sent me what he thought was the theme for the film. And it was just fantastic. And uh, there were bits of instrumentation that I wanted to change. But it, but generally, it was fantastic. So we started building up these kind of reference points so that when it came to actually hearing the music that he compo- that the two of them had composed for the first time after I'd finished the picture edit, uh, it wasn't as scary as sometimes it is when you're hearing new music for the first time and you're having to jettison all the temp music that you've used that you've kind of got used to.
1: It's It's... Interesting to hear that he was so uh, because presumably because it was his first soundtrack, he was so invested in the whole process. Like, yeah. I, I love hearing these old masters who are just uh, something. Some new challenge hits them and they get so excited about it. Um, I actually interviewed uh, for this, for the series uh, last week. I interviewed Mike Stock uh, from Stock Aiken and Waterman.
3: Wow, brilliant! Yeah, and
1: he was talking about how uh, what drives him now. Is he wants to write the perfect pop song, and he, I was
3: kind of thinking you've written about twenty of them, like <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no. I mean, it's I mean, it's like musicians or composers, like writers, like stand-up com- comedians, you know, are always moving the goalposts and searching for the next Nirvana, even yeah. if they've done something good, you know. But that's that's part of the drive, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and what do, because you've made me this project, which is. Uh, you know, it's obviously clearly a big passion project and a big part of your life for a long time. How do you think you will approach the next, you know, whatever is next or, you know, when,
3: when you have to let this go?
0: Um,
3: it's, you have to try and get back to, I mean, I have a love-hate uh, relationship with writing. Um, I, read a, I read a quote recently which was something like, I love, I hate writing, I love having written. And I think, of I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that, I mean, that may be true for you and lots of comedians as well. Yes. I mean, writing is such a kind of purging experience. And yeah. I often feel it makes you it sort of, it, the process almost sets you out, set out to make you feel your frailties as a human being. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, because um, the first thing that happens to
1: you when you sit down to write is the blank page and you... And you immediately go, I'm not a writer.
3: <laughs> yeah, and even when you you know, even when you write the first, I mean, I've I've recently completed the, the first draft of another screenplay, and you know, and all you see are the flaws, and you're just frustrated with yourself and disgusted with yourself that you're, um, you know. But uh, Deirdre is working with uh, John Patrick Shanley, who who is, has written a play called Outside Mullingar that she is rehearsing, um, and who won an Oscar thirty years ago for Moonstruck. Oh and, wow! Um, uh his great quote that I that I saw him tweet the other day was, I hate half of everything I write, but I have to write it in order to get the other half. And I thought that was a brilliant qu- quote, amazing. the experience of writing, you know, and that's how I feel about it. And, you know, you get frustrated that you can't just get everything right on the first draft and you know that's going to take you five drafts. But listen, that's part of learning how, you know, how to write. And I'm psychologically getting a bit better at it, you know, in that I I try not to beat myself up too much about it. And then sometimes you just need simple inspiration. You know, on on writing Noble, I'd written two drafts of it, and I was kind of a bit lost. Um, And I knew that I was meant to go into pre-production in about nine months' time, and that I'd been successful at raising the financing. Um, And I just needed to up the stakes of of the... of the of, of my ideas on the screenplay and actually what i did was i got on i got onto a plane to madeira of all places because the the um the average age in madeira it's a real retirement island the average age is about 90 i'd say so i knew i wasn't going <laughs> to get any mischief <laughs> i went <laughs> and i <there>. just <laughs> spent a week i spent a week in my head just kind of trying to get a breakthrough and on about day four or day five or something, I just had this moment where I thought, right, that's exactly what I need to do with it. That's what I've been missing. And I came back and I wrote what was pretty much the final draft. And sometimes you just need those moments. And, the, you know, you have to relax into it rather than frustrating yourself over the fact that you're useless. Um, is just wait for the muse to strike. And sometimes the muse strike and, uh, it does strike, and obviously sometimes it doesn't, and you've just got to maybe put the thing aside. But in that scenario... I obviously didn't want to be putting it aside because I pretty much had the thing financed and was and was about to go into, you know, pre-production in about five months, which is a lucky and unusual situation to be in. But um, but that's kind of my 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 feeling about writing is that it's a love and hate thing, and um, and you know, I, I, I try and work on two or three things at once as well. Oh,
1: that's a very good idea, because I, I I've actually recently started doing that in the sense that procrastination from one thing can be work for something else. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, I've actually started doing that in the past year and it's, I found it really handy because there's nothing I like better than to procrastinate.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, maybe if you write something fast and you know it's a bit crap and you put it away for six weeks and don't look at it at all, when you come back to it, you'll have a whole load of new ideas that you couldn't have had the day after you wrote it. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think this, it's just learning the tricks of the trade in terms of how to do it. And obviously, you know, the other thing I want to do, having such a big having had such a big six-year project and a passion project, as you say, is, you know, I'd like to think that as Noble comes out across the world that it'll open some a few doors in terms of directing other, other material. And, you know, there's nothing like reading a great script that somebody else has had to labour over for two years that you might just direct. So that's something that I would like to be doing as well.
1: Fantastic. Well, um, that was brilliant and that's going to happen, definitely. I mean, all people have to do is go and see Noble uh, and that will... Yeah, (laughs)
3: nothing nothing to worry about, Stephen, nothing to worry about.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Garoda.
3: Garoda. I'll come back to you if if you fail on that.
1: Absolutely, (laughs) will you, look, put it as a quote in the posters, it'll carry weight, don't worry. (laughs) Um, Before I let you go, actually, there's one thing I wanted to ask you, and that was, because you're married to the star, surely, you know, star and director... There's the, you're obviously, you're looking for different things. I mean, I know you both wanted to make a really good movie, but I suppose there are things, you know, I'm sure Deirdre would have a take that she would maybe prefer, that all that sort of stuff. Did, did that make things difficult?
3: To, uh, to be honest with you, it didn't, because when you're directing, you're, you've you got so many things coming at you and so many people to work with and so much to think about. that um, the great thing about working with Deirdre was we'd worked on the script beforehand. You know, she we'd been talking about the film for... Four years at that point, we've been talking about Christina's story, and we really knew exactly what we wanted. I think, to be honest, what was difficult for Deirdre was that sometimes she just had to bite her lip, because shooting in Vietnam, which was all of the stuff that she shot, I mean, she was on all day, every day yeah. in Vietnam for four weeks solid. And sometimes there was just, you know, she, she knew the pressures that I was under, and she knew how difficult it was to shoot there, And, you know, we didn't have some of the normal systems that you would have shooting here that you might be used to. So some of the time it was difficult for her because she had to move on with a piece to facilitate me or she knew that I was under this pressure or whatever, so didn't push me with this particular aspect of something. And I think she was very patient about that and sort of had to be because shooting in Vietnam was so crazy. And yet at the same time, you know, know, we were prepared enough. We had rehearsed with the Vietnamese actors herself and myself without any of the other crew around during the Christmas holidays. And that had given us a big leap forward in terms of the fact that she constantly, most of the time, apart from working with Brendan Coyle, had to work opposite Vietnamese actors who spoke virtually no English. Whoa, and were yeah, and were course. and were doing, you know, were 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 kind of being coached into I mean, they were great actors, all of them. Yeah, that they had to be coached into their into their English and the inflections of their dialogue and all of that. And obviously, you know, a lot of the weight for that process fell on Deirdre to 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 collaborate with them as fellow actors.
1: Wow. So uh, our the final point is that despite everything she says on stage, Deirdre O'Kane's actually a very patient woman.
3: Exactly. She's a very patient woman, and her husband on stage is a complete figment of imagination. I want to just be clear about that.
1: <laughs> at last, at last you had your say. Listen, Stephen, it's absolutely brilliant.
3: Thanks very much. Thanks, uh, And best of luck with it in uh, the US. Brilliant, it's
1: yeah. totally going to fly.
3: And they we're coming out in France in May, and Australia, New Zealand, and then Latin America, and Mexico, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. So great.
1: Listen, congratulations. That's brilliant. And no doubt, I'll probably see Adana day you will? With, yeah, you
3: can, can you do some babysitting? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I like to worry when I'm down and cat laps. So that'll suit me perfectly. Let's <laughs> yeah. bring, bring one of them on stage with you. That would be good as yeah. well. What if
2: you're a child living on the streets? That's what I was once. Forget about education. For healthcare, care, or a little bit of love, forget that. I'll tell you what, I'll walk, you lead. You have nothing left to prove. This is only the beginning. I have everything left to prove.
1: Well, there you have it, Stephen Bradley there. I learned so much, actually, from talking to him. We recorded that interview shortly before Deirdre O'Kane and Sarah Green both picked up IFTA awards for their performances, and Noble itself was nominated in the Best Film category. It will be out on DVD for Christmas, and it continues to be released into different territories around the world. Well, there you have it. Thanks to my guests, uh, Deirdre O'Kane and, of course, Stephen Bradley. There is a lot more of that interview with Deirdre, actually, uh, where we talk about her stand-up career, so who knows, that might go up as a bonus episode at some point. In the meantime, if you like this episode, please leave a Nice review or rating on iTunes, and most importantly, tell your friends. Garode at garodefairly.com if you want to get in touch, and Stephen and Deirdre are both on Twitter. The website is thenoblemovie.com. And if you like this episode, why not check out my interview with David Ross from last year about his crowdfunded movie, I Do. If I've learned anything from talking to him and to Stephen, it's that if you have an idea, work on it because in the movie business, you never know what might happen. And the to goes to Joe Kane, love it.
2: Oh, my God. I share this completely uh, with one person, and that is my man, Stephen Bradley. You know, I have always believed that the writer is king. When the page is blank, there is no work for any of us. Um, But I've changed my mind. (laughs) I now believe that it's the writer, director, producer, because very few earn that credit. Those who have know what it takes. I know because I live with that beautiful man, and he purged himself. Um, After that, I want to thank Mr. Michael Hunt, because very few people know about him. The people who give the money in our industry are known as angels. I, I really like that we have that tradition, that we call them angels. We had the archangel with us in Mr. Michael Hunt, who stepped up to the plate and gave us the majority of this budget. He did it for the love of one woman, and that is Christina Noble. And at the end of the day, I am just an actress, and I am a pale imitation of the real deal. This woman is so special, she blows my mind. And I'm having this lovely moment because I was standing on the shoulders of a giant. Christina Nova, I love you.
1: Now when you interview a film director, you kind of always want them to remember you as someone that they could potentially hire. I mean, as an actor, he wouldn't be hiring me for sound. That's for certain. You know what? If you knew what the problem was just there, you would have absolutely no respect for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, what
3: well, was it? You hadn't got the microphone plugged in.
0: And worse,
1: I'd is- the headphones plugged into the microphone.
0: <laughs> Being a parent can be really challenging.